Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. As we lead up to Christmas, we've been going through this very short Advent series. We've been looking at how the story of Christmas can shine a light on the culture and ways of living that we often uh, assume or just kind of live out in our life without really thinking about it. Uh, This word Advent, it comes from the Latin word uh, Adventus, which means coming. And then for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus have used this time of year to re-anticipate the coming of Jesus, to wait, to reflect uh, on what it means for God to come to this earth, to take on flesh. Uh, That's the kind of beautiful thing about the Christian calendar is there's always moments throughout the year to reflect on a different truth about who God is, whether that's Lent or Pentecost or Easter or Christmas, we get to reflect on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And Advent within the Christian tradition has traditionally been a moment to recenter our stories on the grand story of Jesus' birth and arrival into human history. So we're using this short series to reflect, to think, to re-anticipate, but actually in a slightly different way to what we've done it before, uh, use the Christmas story to think about the ways and practices that we have Uh, that we live out in the city without even thinking about it and sort of think about what has Christmas got to teach us in this time today. Now, every Christmas, it's likely you'll probably hear from me or from somebody uh, speaking uh, at church something like this. Let me tell you the real meaning of Christmas, as if it's some kind of secret hidden from our culture. But there is actually kind of good reason for that. I remember a couple of years ago uh, watching a trailer for a film called A Boy Called Christmas. Has anyone seen this film? I think it was a sky, a sky. Becca, you must have seen it. You haven't seen it? There's one Christmas film you've not seen. Well done. Um, and it has the, the great Maggie Smith narrating this line. You might find it hard to believe, but long ago, nobody knew about Christmas. It started with a boy called Nicholas. Did it, though? Is that, is that really the boy it started with? Um, but Christmas, at its worst, has become this materialistic, uh, consumeristic, and many times lonely time of year, or at best, a time to spend with family and friends, to rest and to enjoy the nostalgia of the season. And I I actually find it quite fascinating to observe how our culture, um, increasingly secular culture, kind of grapples with Christmas and and what it means. Uh, Polly Toynbee wrote an article uh, in The Guardian last year uh, saying, Christmas comes with good cheer, the tragedy is the religious value. Thank you, Natalie, for giving me that article. Just this really interesting kind of cultural um, uh, grappling that we have in our city, in our world, where we've got this amazing time of year, which everyone loves, everyone celebrates, but it has this religious connotation that many people find uncomfortable. And so within our post-Christian context, Christmas still carries with it this, if you like, tension between the fall of belief in God, the fall of an awareness of a kind of transcendent or, or spirituality within our culture with the rise of a more materialistic and consumeristic time of year. Christmas has become a season of paradoxes. It's now both Christian and secular. It's a time for generosity, but it's also a time for great economic opportunity where lots of people can make lots of money this time of year. It's a time for family and friends, but it's also a time of deep loneliness. It's a time to remember the poor and the refugee, but apparently also a time to make policies that make them someone else's problem. And what we've tried to do in this series is use Christmas, use this time of year to shine a light 
on the stories that we are told and the ways of living that we aspire to in this city. We want to use the Christmas story to shine a light on these things that we just do uh, when we don't often stop to think, is this really the life I should be living? Is this really life to the full? In two weeks, Adnan looked at generosity in a time of indulgence. And tonight, we're going to look at simplicity in a time of excess. And I will warn you, this is going to be super practical, uh, not particularly Christmassy, although I'm going to, we'll try and get some Christmas stuff in there, but it's going to be super practical, um, so uh, hopefully it'll be helpful uh, as we come to that later on. Now, Jesus, uh, as we know, didn't come just to uh, teach us a better story. He came to live a better story. John writes in the passage Adnan read out that Jesus came not as an idea, he came not as a distant voice, but he came flesh and dwelt amongst us. Which means that Jesus adopted a way of living or a lifestyle that demonstrated what he saw as life to the full. And when Jesus says to his followers, follow me, when he says to his disciples, come and follow me, he's invited them to live like him, to see him in every part of his life and reflect that in their own life. And within the Christian tradition, there is a rich history of what we would call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that are designed to reflect the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, to help us become more like him. Now, in 1978, uh, an author called Richard Foster wrote a book called A Celebration of Discipline. It's a terrible title, but it is uh, one of those books I've just reread three or four times over the years. I'd recommend it if, you want, if you're interested. And it was an attempt at that time, so at, like late 70s, to rediscover the gift of spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices uh, in the church, uh, where the church has largely focused on this kind of thing, so a Sunday gathering, uh, what you might call revival gatherings, and also focused in on conversions rather than the daily practice of following Jesus, the Monday to Saturday, if you like, life of a disciple of Jesus. And he included practices and disciplines that we would all be familiar with, things like prayer or reading scripture or fasting or worship like we've done today. But he included others that were part of our heritage, things that followers of Jesus have practiced from the beginning uh, that had been neglected in that time, and I think that's still true for us today. He includes chapters on things like meditation and solitude and silence and confession and the practice of simplicity, which is what we're looking at today. So what on earth is the practice or spiritual discipline of simplicity, I hear you ask? Well, Foster, he would describe it like this. The Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. And he writes that simplicity starts with our hearts, then is expressed in the way in which we live, specifically in how we see or treat possessions, money, and time. So the practice of simplicity finds its roots in multiple verses, uh, like Luke 12, which is the parable of the rich fool that Rath preached on uh, about five or six weeks ago now, it's a brilliant talk. Uh, I'd recommend you listen uh, on the podcast. Uh, lines from that passage like this, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Or Matthew 10 with the rich young ruler whose wealth had such a grip on his heart that when Jesus says, come and sell all the stuff you have, come and follow me, he just couldn't do it. His, his, his wealth, his stuff, his money had too, uh, too much um, focus. It became an idol in his life that he couldn't let go of. Jesus says that it's easier 
uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, nor for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Or Psalm 62, though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Or 1 Timothy 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Or Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never, never will I forsake you. Now all of these passages, and as we look at the life of Jesus, they form the basis and foundation of what is called the practice of simplicity. So previously, this practice was uh, commonly called frugality, uh, which is maybe slightly more easier word to understand than simplicity. And it's based on this Latin word frux, which literally means fruit. So to live a frugal life was to live a fruitful life. That was the kind of concept. But frugality or being frugal in our modern context isn't necessarily looked at in a positive way, or there are other connotations with that word. So it's now more commonly called simplicity. Uh, and uh, it's applied to mon- many different things, not just um, money or possessions, but also our time. And now there are even more modern or secular examples of this kind of way of living. Things like minimalism, I don't know if anyone's heard of that, that kind of way of, there's a documentary on Netflix about it, which uh, is kind of more of a, not to downplay it, because I think it's a legitimate choice, but it's more of a kind of middle class lifestyle choice than it is a spiritual practice, although there is some overlap with the practice of simplicity. Uh, But Foster, he suggests that the practice of simplicity starts with with three inner realities. The first is this belief that what we have, our possessions, our time, our money, we've received it as a gift from God. Secondly, what we have is to be cared for by God. We can trust him both for what we have and what we don't have. And thirdly, what we have is available to others. That's the inward reality of simplicity. And then those in the realities, they compete with the opposite mindset. That firstly, what we have, we believe we have got. It's, it's ours. Secondly, that what we have, we believe we must hold on to. And thirdly, what we have is not available to others. And those are the competing narratives that we have in our mind when it comes to our possessions, our home, our time, or our money. And he writes that if that is our perspective, this kind of competing mindset, we're more likely to live within a state of anxiety and that if we're to experience a liberating spirit of simplicity that simplicity should give in our life, um, we need to kind of let go of those, those false narratives and hold on to this belief that we have as followers of Jesus that everything we have is a gift from God. Everything we have we should hold lightly and it should be available to other people. And if we hold on to things too tightly, if possessions or money or whatever it might be become the idols in our heart, we will live in this sort of state of anxiety because that's where our heart will be, not in God. To quote Foster one more time, he he writes, the central point for the discipline of simplicity is to seek the kingdom of God and the righteousness of the kingdom first and then everything necessary will come in its proper order. It's putting the main thing, it's making the main thing the main thing. And, and it names possessions, money, time particularly, because they are so powerful. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that in many ways, when we think about our own faith, when we think about the life of a follower of Jesus and how we do that, um, we start with what we take out. We start with what we extract from our life before we think about putting things in. So we think about what's distracting us. Why are we so relentlessly busy? What are we striving after? We, we grow in our self-awareness in those things before we start to think, okay, how can I add in prayer or Sabbath or silence into my life as a follower of Jesus? We start with making space. We start with this self 
awareness to just understand, like, why do we think the way that we think? Why do we do the things that we do? What's the water that we swim in that often we don't fully um, understand or we don't fully see until we take a moment to stop and reflect? And so the practice, this practice of simplicity, seeks to make space in our lives to free us from the reliance on money and possessions and to remove the grip that they have on our hearts. The practice of simplicity asks, how can I simplify my life in order to create space to love God and to love others? How can I create space to love God and love others, to seek first his kingdom? Simplicity, in essence, is a lifestyle choice. Jan Johnson writes that the point of simplicity is not efficiency, increased productivity, or even living a healthier, more relaxed life. The point is making space for treasuring God's own self. This is about taking the distractions of our life and making space to worship God. Now, when we think about uh, lifestyle or how we live, we usually think about the limits of what we can afford. If you go to The Guardian, you'll see five major sections on the website. You'll see news, opinion, sport, culture, and lifestyle. Lifestyle, according to The Guardian and most newspapers, magazines, is about travel, fashion, food, architecture, all these lovely things. It's about experiences or expressions that are attainable for us depending on our wealth. And when we think about our lifestyle, we're more likely to go to the brands that we uh, want to associate with or the design styles that we like or the experiences we seek to uh, go after as we live this life, or we think of a life that we actually want to have, a life we aspire to have, a life that we desire to have. We want the holidays, the clothes, the home, even if we don't have them right now. Or we want to be the kind of person that has those things. But this is a very modern idea. It's not, this is not something people were necessarily thinking about 100 years ago, but it's also a very intentional idea. When it comes to uh, the concept, even the concept of a lifestyle, having uh, a way in which we spend our money, when we think about it in that way, it's actually, in many ways, an intentional decision that was built over time across the 20th century. If we look at how we saw products in that century, uh, what happened was it went, um, how we see, see products went from a needs-based kind of uh, perspective to a desire-based perspective. Paul Mazur of the now uh, infamous Lehman Brothers um, uh, kind of financial um, uh, investor, investing company that was part of the collapse in 20, 2008. Uh, this guy, he's writing, I think, in the 20s or 30s. But he says this, in America, we must shift from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. This was an intentional strategy to get people to spend more money, to consume more, to go from a needs-based culture to a desire-based culture. This concept of lifestyle that we have in our modern world is an intentional one in order for us to buy more things, to become more reliant on things, and to try to um, align ourselves with a story that says my, my worth, my identity is all wrapped in what I can afford and what I have or don't have. Consumerism, this idea that humans are here to make money and spend money to further the comfort and prestige of our lifestyle through consumption is the water that we swim in. What's so powerful about this shift from a needs-based culture to a uh, desires-based culture is that it uses the power of stories 
to entice and draw you in. This whole sermon series is called Living a Better Story because there are competing narratives that try to get us to live a certain way. It tells you stories in order to shape your desire for what you want your life to be like and therefore shape your behavior and your habits. And the story is essentially this. You don't have this. You need to have this. Or you deserve to have this. And you see this in really peculiar ways. I don't know if like, anyone's ever watched an advert about shampoo or a razor, and they're trying to tell it in a really artistic, like, cool way. And you're like, just tell me if it's good. Like, does it clean my hair? Does it, would it shave my beard? Not that I want to shave my beard. Um, like, it's really peculiar. Like, or like banks. Banks will tell like, really creative stories. And I'm not against creativity, as you know. But they, they're trying to just entice us through a story to get us to align with a certain bank or, or buy a certain shampoo or whatever. That's how they get us to move from this needs-based culture to a desire-based culture. They try to tell a particular lifestyle to get us to purchase the product. It's a story that draws us in to consume what's being offered and to create this desire in us, if we didn't have it before, to satisfy that, um, that desire through consumption. Consumerism is built on the idea that we can be manipulated and controlled in how we spend our money. Uh, we, can that we can have our desires changed and enticed through marketing and advertising, not that they're bad things. But that is the story we are told. That is the, the idea behind consumerism. And so when we as followers of Jesus or, or anyone really plays that kind of consumer game, when that is a story we live in or that we adopt, what are we left with? Well, the reality is it kind of never really ends. Our desire for more never really ends. There's always something new, always something better for us to buy. I think it was Warren Buffett who was asked, um, how much is enough money? And he, he answered, just a little bit more. That's, that's the consumer game. There's always just a little bit more that we can have. There's always a better thing or a new thing that we can desire that will make us whole or complete or whatever uh, is trying to sell us. There's always a desire for more that will never really be satisfied by the next purchase. If I had that one thing, it would make me that little bit happier. Now, in my own life, as I've been reflecting over the last few years on how this has sort of played itself out in my own experience, I would actually use the leisure or the hobby of shopping to mask kind of a deep sense of loneliness in my life. This was especially true when I first moved to London, and I kind of made the intentional decision not to kind of cut ties with my sort of hometown, but I made a decision, I'm just going to stay here, I'm going to root myself here. It was, it's like really easy to go home, but I'm not going to do that. I want to invest in this community, I want to invest in these friendships that I was trying to cultivate, which is really hard for me because I'm, I'm an introvert, so that was like a hard thing to do. But I found myself with just lots of free time and felt this kind of deep sense of loneliness. And the way in which I tried to mask that was just to go and buy some stuff, uh, just to go shopping, because it also gave me this sort of hit, gave me this kind of excitement to get something new, but also it kind of masked the fact that I didn't have actually have anything else better to do with my day. But then also when you're in this city, which is so image conscious, uh, where we get, we're just inundated with the ways in which we should look or the ways in which we should be, it's also just that kind of creates this desire to, oh, I've got to buy the new thing, or I've got to look like this, or I want to align myself with this group in order to fit in. And for me, it just sort of, it was a mask to feel this sense of loneliness in my life. And I remember this moment I actually, I think it was maybe like five, six years ago where I was doing this thing. So I was shopping. Um, I had a free day, I had a day off, and I thought, oh, I'll just go and do the leisure of shopping. And um, I just like, it was just the most like anxious, it was almost like God was sort of 
revealing the story I've been part of or the, the ways in which I've been living that were just not really not helpful or, or healthy for me. And I just had this real anxiety this day. I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is, this is awful. This does not like, fill the void that I'm trying to fill through purchasing some item or feeling like I need to get this certain thing to find whatever I'm looking for. Like, it was just a real like, moment, kind of line in the sand moment for me as I realized just how uns- unsatisfying it was. And I've kind of been on a journey to figure out, well, how do I be intentional with what I purchase, with what I wear, so that it, I don't go back into that uh, that way of living where shopping became this this thing for me. And I knew that we lived in a consumeristic culture. Like I inten- inten- uh, intellectually understood all of that. But actually, I didn't realize that I was living this story out in my life. You know, I'd have, I'd have said that's bad, we shouldn't do that. But it was just, it was just how I was living uh, in my own life and didn't realize the effect it was having on me and how reliant I'd become on it uh, until I, maybe God, I don't know, um, showed me actually what it was doing to my heart and how it was making me feel. Consuming, consumerism, all it does, purchasing things, all it does is masks our hunger. It doesn't truly nourish us. It doesn't nourish the deepest parts of who we are. Now, a lot of this you may have heard before, the kind of consumeristic culture we live in. It's kind of a, uh, becoming a bit of a cliche, if you like. Um, it's not a new concept. But I do want us just to contemplate this question, particularly this time of year where the pressure to purchase stuff, the pressure to buy gifts, even though we're living out acts of generosity, there's real pressure there. Uh, just to contemplate the question, what are we reliant upon? What are those things in our life that we just live out because we're part of this city, part of this culture? Uh, this is the water we swim in that we are sort of using to mask some of maybe what's going on inside. What are the things we just go to as the default to mask the stress or the pain of life? And I do want to be really careful and tread carefully here. Some of you will know what that thing is. You'll know that thing that you go to it's become a, almost a dependency for you. Um, and it could be shopping, it could be to do with eating or drinking or hoarding, it could be anything like that. And I just want to tread lightly and just emphasize that there is no shame in any of this stuff. Like, we all have our stuff, we're all on a journey, we all have the things that we need to work through. And the best, most powerful thing you can do if you're grappling with something is bring it to the light. It's just tell somebody that this is what you're going through, this is what you're reliant upon. And myself, Adnan, Jess, like, just speak to one of us. Uh, help us bring it to the, help. Let us help you bring it to the light, um, and it will just lose some of its power. Just that first time you speak it out. Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm reliant on, upon, reliant upon. Once you speak those words for the first time, it really does lose some of its power. Um, so please speak to us. We've also got the steps course starting. I think it's the 22nd of January is the introduction. Like, check it out. See if it's of interest. That could be a really good thing for you to uh, look into as well. It could be a great first step. But for some of us, we might just need to do some internal digging to figure out what has truly got our heart. Like, what, what things are we just doing by default? Uh, what, what stories are we living in that we just, we just outwork in our life because that is the story of our culture? Maybe there's a moment we need where we just need to stop and think. Like, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I think in the ways that I think? What has truly got my heart? When I imagine my life in 5, 10, 20 years, like, what do I aspire to have or to be or to do. Maybe we need to do some internal digging to figure that out. And for followers of Jesus, the beautiful thing that we have is that firstly, we are loved by him completely and utterly. That is the reality we all live with him. That's the story we have. We are loved by Jesus. But we're also invited to live what we think is a better story uh, where we get to learn from him, live like him uh, in our day and uh, in our city today. Is that our goal? To be loved by Jesus and to live more like him. 
And I want to suggest that for us, for followers of Jesus, our lifestyle is not an expression of wealth or preference or brand affiliation, but it's an expression of what we actually value the most. And it's the kind of person we want to become. That's what our lifestyle should be. It should reflect the person we are wanting to be like and the person we want to become. The lifestyle you either consciously or unconsciously adopt will form you into a certain kind of person who makes certain kinds of decisions. Here's what Dallas Willard says. We can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his Father. So for us, we get to look to Jesus, the life that he led, and model our lives on him. He was living life to the full, like in him is life in all its fullness. We get to model that. We don't just get to believe that in our minds or in our hearts. We actually get to live that out in our city. And that's just an incredible opportunity for us. Within the Christian tradition, we have what is called as spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines in order to do that. And to answer or to resist the power of excess and status and the tyranny of more and more and more comes the practice of simplicity. And it is an ancient practice inspired and rooted in the life of Jesus that can be embraced by both rich and poor, that shines a light on the excess of our culture that is most prominently displayed at this time of year. And the beauty of this practice is that it's really a principle that you could apply to many different things. And the questions we can ask ourselves is how are we stewarding the gifts that God has given us? Are they creating more space and more freedom for us to love God and love others? Or are they distracting us or covering up a deeper issue in our life? Are we creating more space to love God and love others? Or are they distracting us or covering up a deeper issue in our life? So in Foster's work, he suggests 10 ways, 10 principles that we can outwork uh, or how we can outwork the practice of simplicity in our life. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach like five minutes on each 10 things. It's like... It's, that would be here late. Um, and you don't need to apply all of these, but I do think they're really helpful because this practice is not like prayer, which is a bit more specific. It's more of a principle that we could apply to different things. Each of you might want to look at that and think, where do I need to simplify in my life? Like what, what can I take from this practice and see that actually this thing is distracting me or this thing is actually masking something? How can I apply this in my life? So there's 10 things. We're going to go through relatively quick um, and you can apply them in, in different ways. This was written in 1978, so I've adapted it a little bit given our uh, different context of the technology and all that stuff. Uh, and also, as Adam said, New Year is coming. This is like, if you're someone that makes resolutions, um, this is a good time to think about this stuff. So here is Foster's 10 principles for simplicity. Are you with me? Okay, good. Number one, don't buy things for status. This is what Willard said. In frugality or, or simplicity, we abstain from using money or goods at our disposal in ways that merely gratify our desires or hunger for status, glamour or luxury. Practice, practicing frugality, simplicity, means we stay within the bounds of what general good judgment would designate as necessary for the kind of life to which God has 
led us. And this is just a really practical thing to think about when we buy our clothes or buy our car or buy our home or buy whatever it might be that we're looking to purchase, that we could just think about what's the motivation behind what I'm doing here? Why do I buy the things that I buy? What, are they, what am I trying to communicate uh, through the things that I have uh, through what I purchase? And you may not need to change anything, but it's just I found it helpful just to think, how do I intentionally or how do I... Um, what role does this sort of uh, purchasing things play in my life so that I can be intentional about it and think about it before I'm in the moment where I want to buy something. I can actually think, no, should I purchase this thing? Like, what, what message does it send to those around me? So number one, don't buy things for status. Number two, reject anything that produces or enables addiction. Two examples here from my life. Um, one is, I guess, Bit of a, a bit of a broken record with this, but social media. Social media is like, it's the most addictive thing in our culture. And I came off, I think I probably said this already before, um, since, but I came off social media completely in June. And I am not anti-social media, and I do think I'll go back to it eventually. But when I go back, I want to be really intentional as to why I use social media. And I, what I realized that I was just consuming content, and I wasn't actually contributing anything myself. And the, the kind of moment that really shifted it for me was when I was, um, I just started my sabbatical, sorry I mentioned it again, just started my sabbatical, uh, I was in Scotland with the family, it was lovely, and uh, I saw a post from a, another church, and it just built this like resentment and anger and envy, like af after I saw this thing, and it was completely non, you know, it was completely inappropriate response to this post, and I was like, whoa, what is going on here, like this is not good. I was complete. I was de dehumanizing people. I was making assumptions about people. I was like, "This is not what I want to think about other churches. This is not how I want to use my sort of free time. This is just not healthy." So I was like, "I need to come off this." And I used the sabbatical as like, a, "Okay, I'll do three months, no social media," and I haven't come, gone back on since. So I'm just still like, I'm just not not there. As I say, I think I'll go back on, but I want to be really intentional with why I do it. Another thing I did. I hope this is helpful, but this is just, just stuff in my life. Another thing I did a few years ago is um, with just thinking about who I follow and why I follow certain people on different platforms. Just being really clear with what, what is Twitter, what is Instagram, what is Facebook. Like, um, I remember uh, when I was on Instagram, um, I would just follow everyone and anyone. So friends, family, uh, writers, brands, like just everything. And I basically was just inundated with stuff all the time um, without any sort of intentionality behind it. And I thought, no, this, is, this feels like wrong. Like I could be on Instagram at nine o'clock and I see something about work and then I think about work and I think about that email I didn't send. Like it just, it's just not, it wasn't healthy. So I thought, okay, no, Instagram, it's for friends and it's for church, that's it. So it helped me think, when do I go on Instagram? Just like, or Twitter, this is what Twitter is, football news, whatever. Like that, just naming what these different platforms are for helps you understand when should you go on them, how you should engage in them. Sorry, I should football. I shouldn't have said football, Johnny, should I? Oh, well. Um, to be fair, that was the last thing he looked at. That wasn't him going on. He was actually scanning the QR code, but anyway. Um, uh, but just be intentional. Why do I use certain platforms? What are they for? What's their purpose? And what are they creating in me? Like, is there resentment, anger, envy? this sort of seeing the lifestyle of others and just wanting it more and more and more. Like, what is this stuff producing in us? So that's social media. The other thing for me, which is, uh, maybe we don't talk about this enough, I don't really know, uh, but it's games. Like, games are super addictive. I, I was crazy addictive to, addicted to games growing up in my teenage years. I remember I bought another game. I bought this game, Championship Manager. Anyone remember Championship Manager? Super addictive. I bought it again when I was, like, 21, 22, after not playing it for like, four years. I played it so much in the first, like, day 
like, I felt sick and I had to take it back. It was so bad. Like, I was so, I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got the, this is a problem. So I don't, I don't have any consoles. I don't have any games in my phone. Like, this is, this, I'm just like, I'm, I can't do this because I just get enticed by this addiction. So games, if it's, that's helpful, just throwing it out there. Think about what, how you use it. Anyway, they're just addicted. Don't use things or buy things that enable or uh, produce any form of addiction in you. We're gonna, oh, I'm going to speed up. Number three. De develop a habit of giving things away. De accumulate. We probably, again, this is probably something we don't talk about enough, um, but this reliance on things or this um, maybe like hoarding is a word you could use, like an inability to give things away or throw things away when they've kind of uh, gone beyond their usefulness or whatever. Um, that can be a real issue. People can really hold a lot of, of their heart or, or stuff can just have a real grip on people. Again, my encouragement is just if you resonate, if you relate with that, if you kind of know that's a thing, like talk to us, let's pray, bring it to the light. It's the most important first step. So number four, refuse to always need the new thing. This is massive with technology, like every year, Apple, Microsoft, whoever it is, will bring out a new product and it will just show us, hey, this is how much better this thing is compared to the thing you've got in your pocket. We've just got to be aware that we don't always need to buy the new thing. We don't always need, in fact, we never really need the new thing. We can use what we have. It can be useful. It can still be good. It can still have a purpose. So just be aware of, Again, the stories we're told about products, particularly when it comes to technology. Number five, and I think this is a really interesting one for us in our context within a church community, which is learn to enjoy things without owning them. And maybe there's something for us here where, you know, space is a real issue in London. Um, we don't all live in, like, mansions. So, like, having the ability to share stuff is, could be really helpful. Um, not feeling like we always need to buy something, but having the posture of, like, hey, like, let's share. Could be whatever. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity there. Maybe we can think about how do we facilitate that kind of thing in a city like ours. Number six, develop a deep appreciation for nature. I think this is an important one because it, it helps um, mitigate some of the desire for experiences or spending money on experiences just to you know, go to Victoria Park or walk along the canal. Like We develop that um, or if we look up, look up and just see, if we get off our phone and see just the beauty of what we've been given. I think that's a really helpful and healthy thing for a follower of Jesus to do. It just, I think it, for me anyway, it cultivates worship. It's like, wow, this is amazing. Look what we get to enjoy. So there's one. Number seven, and this is actually really important. Um, have a, Foster describes it, have, have a healthy skepticism for buy now, pay later schemes. And I just want to name, like, debt can be a really, really difficult situation for people. And again, I think this is something we probably don't talk, talk about enough. And it's such an easy spiral to get into. Like, anyone, I think, can get into the grip of debt, um, again, particularly in our culture, with all these sort of, was it Klarna? The thing we can, Klarna, like, it's just dangerous. It can really escalate and become problematic and just cause real anxiety. Um, so again, I just want to name it. If you're going through that, talk to us, please. Like, there's, there's ways we can help, both practically and also just spiritually as friends. Um, we have Acts 435, uh, which might be helpful as well. So again, just bring it to the light. There's no shame. All, any of us can get into the grip of debt. Um, at any time, it's a real, it's a really slippery slope. So just naming that as well. Number, what were we on? Eight. Oh, and also cap course. We're doing a cap course, cap money course in the new year. So if that's that could be really helpful um, for you. Number eight. Tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For me, this I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, given I'm a pastor. But often I just I want to please people, so I'll just say yes when I probably should say no. And this is a, applying simplicity to how we use our time making sure that we're actually um, able to deliver on the things that we say we'll deliver on. And I think that's just an important thing. It's okay to say no sometimes. It's okay to have boundaries in our life. So that's number eight. 
Number nine, reject anything that breeds oppression in others. There's been a real move in our culture to think about how we uh, purchase ethically, whether that's clothes, with all of the uh, difficulty with the fashion industry and the effects that's having across the world uh, with climate or with how people are treated, whether that's for our food. Like, there's just ways to think about how do we purchase, uh, what's our purchasing habits. And there's, there's limits to how we can actually do this. And there's, there's a little bit of realism that I think we need to have with some of this. So don't have the pressure to kind of go and have to spend lots of money on lots of things. Um, but I think this is a really helpful thing when we're buying something just to think through like, what, what am I buying into? What am I paying my money on? There's a great uh, resource called um, goodonyou.eco. Uh, it's a directory, uh, online directory, where, where you can just search brands and um, manufacturers to see how do they treat people, the earth, and animals. It's just to give it a rating, really helpful. Um, and all the major brands, you'll see, they'll, they'll have a, a rating for that, um, and blogs and that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in that, uh, check that out, goodonyou.eco. Okay, a couple of quotes. For this one, here's uh, Foster. Christian simplicity frees us from this modern mania. It brings sanity to our compulsive extravagance and peace to our frantic spirit. It allows us to see material things for what they are, goods to enhance life, not to oppress life. People once again become more important than possessions. Simplicity enables us to live lives of integrity in the face of the terrible realities of our global village. Again, another quote from Celebration of Discipline. And then Walter Brueggemann, in his book on the Sabbath, wrote, Indeed, our consumer society is grounded in the generation of artificial desires, readily transposed into urgent needs. The always emerging new desires and new needs create a restless striving that sets neighbor against neighbor in order to get ahead, to have an advantage, and to accumulate at the expense of the other. The power of such a compulsion to get, of course, negates neighborly possibility. For followers of Jesus, how we treat people, how, where our money goes should be like super important um, if we're to live lives of integrity, if we believe that we're loved by God and that God li- loves everybody. That's number nine. Finally, number 10. Finally, reject anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. This is like the summary. This is the, the big one for what simplicity is. It's about making space to free us from the distractions that get us, get in the way of being fully present to God and to others, it's seeking first his kingdom, his righteousness, and everything else finds its proper place after that. And in the new year, we're going to do a series uh, called The Undivided Life. Uh, it's going to be a, a six, five to six week series um, before we go back to Luke, uh, looking at w- uh, when we think about our time or our worship or our mind, like how are we living a life that's fully devoted on Jesus uh, and not allowing the idols of our world, the, uh, the stories that we're told, in our culture, not allowing them to have prominence in our life, but actually living out a wholehearted uh, life for Jesus. We're going to do that in the new year, uh, which will be exciting. Merry Christmas. Well done. <laughs> We're through it all. Why don't the band... Like, oh, I'm on the band. What do I do? I'll just stay here. Uh, why don't you stand to your feet? Uh, well, I'm going to pray for us. And I kind of touched on lots of, um, lots of things that, for, that in, a, in a general sense may not have felt like things, but I do think this, uh, things like debt, maybe things like hoarding, this inability to let go of things, um, this sort of compulsive spending, just could be some, like, they could be the big things in people's life that they're grappling with. So I just want to uh, name that again, um, and I want to pray for us, I'm going to pray for us that we can live this life, live a life that reflects Jesus, but for those of you who particularly are grappling with this, I'm going to pray for you, 
um, particularly. And again, you can come to the come to the front if you'd like prayer, particularly for something, or just talk to myself, Adnan, Jess, or Natalie at the at the end, and we'd love to pray for you. Again, first step: bring it to the light. That's that's the first thing we do with any of this stuff. Um, so why don't I pray, and then we'll sing a Christmassy song to finish. Yeah, Jesus, just we thank you so much that you became flesh, Lord, that your light, it just shines in the darkness. The light of your life shines in this city, in the stories that were told, in the different ways of living that we have. Uh, Lord God, would you help each and every one of us to reflect over this season the stories that we are living in, maybe without even realize we are living in it, Lord God. Would uh, this, this principle, this idea of simplicity, of and letting go of things, of realizing that everything we have is from you and is available to others, would that be a kind of defining principle in our life? Would we be able to see the ways in which so many different things can just grip our hearts? We can get told so many different stories that make us feel less than you've called us to be. And Jesus, I just pray we will be able to see those things for what they are. They are lies that we are not to believe. Would you see us? You see every part of us love us dearly you came to earth for us and not only that you lived a life that we get to reflect and model you died a death that frees us from the slavery and the bondage of sin and you lit you rose again so we could have new life resurrection life in you so jesus we just pray for anyone uh, who's particularly grappling with some of this stuff whether it is debt or uh, an inability to let go of certain possessions or certain things like a, a hoarding mentality or for those of us that just have feel this sort of spending compulsion in our lives God I just pray that firstly we would experience your grace and your love in this moment we ex- we'd experience and know that um, sort of deep down in our desires and our heart that your life your story is such a better story Lord Jesus Lord you don't want us to live in slavery or bondage you want us you want to free us from anything that can take a hold of our life take a hold of our heart that is just that shouldn't be there God, I just pray that for those of us who can name those things, would you comfort them? Would you know that there is light ahead? Uh, would they know that this, this, this thing that's got a hold of them doesn't need to define who they are? That there, there can be freedom that can come from it, Lord Jesus. And would you give them the wisdom to know the next steps in what to do? And for those of us that maybe are grappling with stuff that we aren't even aware of, God, would you just bring it to the light over these next two or three weeks, Lord Jesus? Would we just contemplate the life that we are living and uh, the life that you invite us into, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you reveal things to us in our life so that we can live in true freedom, true peace, true, true joy, despite the pain and suffering of this world, Lord, we can still live in that way. We can be a non-anxious presence in our city, in our world. We can live a better story, um, not just this time of year, but throughout the year, Lord God. And um, yeah, we just lift this to you. We thank you for this year. We pray for uh, all of those that uh, will be heading off this week uh, into their different places, wherever they're going for Christmas. Lord, would you bless them and keep them? Would your face shine upon them? Uh, Would they have a restful uh, Christmas, Lord Jesus? Would you just, yeah, would there be such a a sense of gratitude and peace this this year for all of us as we just reflect on what you've done and what you are inviting us into next year, Lord God? Um, Yeah, be with us this week. Be with us these next few weeks, Lord God with whatever they may bring. We pray these things in Jesus' name.